next guest is a nonfiction author, thought leadership strategist, speaker, business advisor, and executive coach. Her book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader, was published by Wiley in January of 2014. You can also find it on Amazon or at your local bookstore and in our show notes. Denise Brousseau is the CEO of Thought Leadership Lab, a boutique professional services firm. She has also spoken widely about entrepreneurship, leadership, and thought leadership. Denise calls herself an accidental thought leader. In just three years, with no plan and little inkling of what might unfold, she went from an almost completely unknown nonprofit executive to receiving widespread media coverage, numerous opportunities to speak at national and international conferences and universities, and even in and even an invitation to the White House. Today, she advises executives and entrepreneurs on their journey from leader to thought leader. Denise, welcome to the show. We are happy to have you on. Good to be here. Thank you, Carlos. So tell me, Denise, what made you decide to write a nonfiction book? What or who was your inspiration? I think that the background that I have is one where books were really worshipped. I come from a family of readers. The competition every week was how many books you could get out of the library. So I suspect it started at a really young age to think that someday I might write a book. But the truth is that I had an opportunity in 2001 to write a book, and I ended up not taking it. And so... Ten years later, I got another opportunity, and this time I wasn't going to let it pass me by. And the story was really that I got an email one day from an acquisitions editor who said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I have to say, I answered that email within 10 seconds, (laughs) saying, yes, yes. And uh, it it sort of came from there. It's just, first of all, making making this belief uh, come true that I could write a book, and secondly, having this second opportunity once I'd missed the first. So share with us how you believe a writing a book is a labor of love. Because you said you, within 10 seconds, you responded to him and said, yes. So you, you somewhat learned a lesson, and I'm sure there was something else, some passion behind that as well. Absolutely. And, and it's a couple of different things. For me, it really is a labor of love for my subject. I really love the concept of thought leadership, and I love sharing with people the journey, both my journey as an accidental thought leader, but also the journey of others that I work with and of others that I've met. And, and realizing that years ago, when I started my journey, I would have loved to have a book that taught me the steps. And, and so it was really a love of the subject and a, and a desire to share what I knew. But for others, I've really found, as I've talked to people, you know, some of people, it's a love of writing. I can't say that's really me. I, I really loved launching the book, but I'm not sure that the writing process was as such fun, uh, maybe because I'm an extrovert and I don't like sitting quietly in my room writing. Um, but other people, it's a real love of their readers. You know, they just really believe that they have a message to share. And I think that's also part of my motivation, that, that there is this sense that there's a much wider audience than I will ever be able to meet on a daily basis in, in my lifetime, one by one or even audience by audience. So to be able to send a book out in the world just allows your ideas to go to far-flung corners of the universe that you have no idea that they, that they would have ever reached otherwise. And that's pretty exciting. So talking about your audience, what was the goal of writing your book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader? I had 
been working in this world of, of thought leadership for a couple of years. I had had a client in my in 2008, who called me up one day and said, hey, I, I want to be a thought leader like you were. And I and I thought, oh, I was a thought leader? And, you know, so I have to admit, it was sort of the first time anybody had ever really applied that term to me. And and I had taken the journey myself, as, as you said in the intro, really sort of accidentally. It was more of an opportunistic chance uh, for me to be in the spotlight and, and to have this opportunity to spread an idea. But then to have the opportunity in my business to really to focus that work on executives and entrepreneurs on taking that journey for themselves and realizing that there was very little information out there. And so my goal definitely was how can I outline in a blueprint fashion, step-by-step, what can you do to take your journey from leader to thought leader? What can you do to build a following for your ideas and and what does it really take to create uh, people, uh, create followers, but also create people who can build on your ideas and, and, and take what you've done and, and grow it more substantially. And so I wanted to reclaim the word thought leader, which I think had been sort of frittered away to say anybody who had a Twitter account was a thought leader. But I also wanted to create uh, an action plan for people about how to do that for themselves. So with that being said, let's talk about the mechanics of what you went through. Uh, when you was actively writing this book, did you write this book for yourself or did you write it for the market? In other words, when you wrote this book, were you talking to yourself? Were you telling yourself these points? Or did you envision yourself talking to an audience and formulating what you would say to them? Somebody shared with me a really good piece of advice when I was starting my book, and it was to, to actually envision and sort of an avatar, a, a specific person that, or a specific type of person that you could talk to as you're writing the book. And similar when I had been, I came from the product world, uh, developing software products, and you, know, you always had in mind someone that you were developing that product for. I think the same thing for me in the book, that I had, a, I had an audience member that I hoped was a generalizable person, but that was, had a certain kind of background, a certain level of education, a certain level of expertise, and that I was targeting my book at that person. You know, some people say they even put a picture of that person up on the wall. I, I'm not sure I went that far, but that was the voice I wanted to be counseling. And, and really, it's, I was looking at somebody like one of my clients. It, it really became a conversation or a reenactment in some ways of conversations that I have every day with people. What are the things that people ask me as a coach and a consultant for thought leaders? What is it they need to know? And really trying to create that dialogue, create that conversation in a way that is both personal and yet business at the same time. In other words, I want to be somebody's friend, but I also want to guide them and, and direct them and advise them of the right direction to go. So I try. I guess I was trying to mix all of those things together as I was, as I was developing the tone and the point of view for my book. So does that you, make sense? Yes, it does. So were you speaking prior to writing your book? Yes. And I'm speaking about this topic specifically. I had a couple of years before I had had the opportunity through a conference that I started here in Silicon Valley to do a workshop on the topic of leader to thought leader. And at the time, it, you know, that wasn't 
I didn't have a book in mind. I was just teaching this, and I had a three-hour workshop at this conference, and we had a really a sellout crowd for the for the program. We didn't know it was the first time I'd done it, and I, I invited a friend of mine over to who's a graphic facilitator, and we put up this huge huge uh, picture on poster paper on the wall and she sort of drew a picture of my of my journey that I was trying to talk her through and then we came up with post-it notes and and we we outlined what my points were and then we thought of you know what would the exercise is going to be and I so I had taught it at that one time and then I started teaching it not in a three-hour form but in shorter forms in other places like I kind of had developed a one-hour talk and I had developed some some shorter uh, I'd done a webinar on it so yes I had been talking about it for a while but I will say that while I was writing the book, a lot of additional things were added. So when I really look back, it was a five-step process when I began. And when I wrote the book, it turned into being a seven-step process from leader to thought leader. And, and really, I uncovered some of that knowledge as the book was unfolding, as I started to interview people, as I started to try to put all my ideas into the book, I realized, okay, wait, there's these two other chapters that that really need to be teased out and called out and, and, and laid out in a different way. I'm glad you brought up that point on how the, the, book, the book grew itself. So how did you start writing the book? Did you create an outline or did you just start writing a bunch of little articles and waiting till you had enough of them to make a book? <clears throat> and if you can uh, share a little bit of the process you went through in the beginning, because it's not easy starting to write a book. <laughs> no, it really isn't. And, and it was a combination of, uh, I, I can't say I had a straight path. And as a former product project manager, I, I would have loved to be able to say I had it all prettied up and, and tied up in a nice bow, but I can't say that I'm that girl. Uh, when it really came down to it, I, it was a number of different ways that I started the book. So I had started blogging. I had started uh, teaching and speaking. And so from those perspectives, I had and the beginning of an outline. And this visual image, uh, I, after I gave a talk, that same graphic artist came and did uh, a visual of the actual journey. Literally, she created a beautiful image of the journey and the stops on the journey that I you, I had sort of in my hand. And when, the, when I um, got the call, when I got the email from this acquisitions editor, she said, you know, could I come and sit and meet with her? And I said, sure. And she said, you know, pitch me whatever ideas you want. So I, I spent a week and I sort of thought, what is it I want to pitch? And so I came with three different ideas for books. And, and But I also brought this image that was from the talk. And that really sold her, to be honest. It was, it was a graphic of my journey from leader to thought leader. And it was the visual. Most of us are visual learners. So I would really recommend it for people if you can have a visual of what you're talking about. Sometimes words are not enough to sell somebody on an idea. But because I had taught it and because I was passionate about it and I had this image, that was the, that was the idea that she instantly resonated with. So then we began a journey of writing the proposal, and the proposal had to include an outline. It had to include some sample chapters. And so at that point, I ended up, you know, kind of working somewhat backwards to say, okay, how would I then take what I've already done and turn it into a book? And and I had two really great people who advised me. One was this wonderful acquisitions editor who, from the beginning, had a very clear view of my book. 
But secondly, a woman who's a mentor of mine, who's a book coach, who sat down with me and, and you know, we really pounded on the, the outline. And so it was the combination of these articles, this teaching, this book proposal, and this outline that all kind of came together as the beginning of the book. So it was a lot of different things, really. So you had a good head start than most people do. You you had a lot of little things that helped you put a book together, and then you had also the people behind you that helped you formulate at least what direction to put this book in, correct? Yeah, and I would say don't go about this alone. This is not for the faint of heart. I have to, I have to admit from my experience that the more people I would bring into the process, the better the process went. And and yeah, I'm a, I'm a very independent person. I, I often think that I can get everything done by myself and that I should in some ways do that. Maybe there's a little voice in my head that says that, but I had to reject that voice over and over because the more I reached out and the more I asked for help. So even during that beginning time when we were writing the proposal, uh, the I was out t- going to every class I could. I, literally, I went to every conference, went to every... Went, turned, downloaded every webinar, read every uh, every email, blog, podcast, anything I could find about publishing and books because I was also trying to decide, did I want to go with a traditional publisher? Did I need to have an agent? Did I Should I self-publish? What was the point of, of either and all the different paths? So I was kind of doing a lot of homework. And the more I ca- called on friends of mine who'd been down this path before, amazing amounts of information was just handed to me over coffee, lunch, calls, whatever. And I, I so recommend to people to reach out to anyone you know who's written a book. We all think, oh, they're not going to want to talk with me, or they, you know, they've got they're too busy. But I gotta say, to a person, every author was more than generous with their time about their process, what, why they decided to publish with a publisher versus self-publish, et cetera, et cetera. So many thousands of questions that I had over that six to eight month period from the time that, that I got that first email until the book contract was in place. There was, there was just lots of people. And I highly recommend that people think about, look through your LinkedIn, go scroll through your contacts and think, who do I know? Or pick up books off your shelf and see if there's anybody I can, I can reach out to that might be willing to talk with me. Because the more advice and knowledge you have, the better in this process. I'm glad you said that because what you basically talked about was somebody doing something new and entering a new community. And when they don't know anybody, they don't want to be a burden on somebody else who's in the field and they think that's very successful and very busy. But once you're in that community, because I'm part of several different communities, and we all, no matter what community you go to, we want to help somebody who's in our community. We want to share knowledge and we want to also at the same time grow because we have no idea who that person's going to come out to. And not only that, without even thinking that, people just want to help other people intuitively. Yeah, I I started... Years ago, I used to do a lot of career coaching, and and I remember saying at one point that I think doing informational interviews, which is really what this is, doing an informational interview in some ways is a favor to somebody's spouse. Here's what I mean by this. You know, most of us want to talk about what we do all day long. You know, we'd love to tell our spouse about 
our book writing process or our job or what we just achieved, whatever. And people are tired. You know, the ones who are around us every day, they're tired of listening to us. But if you call somebody up and say, hey, could you tell me about how you did this or what made you successful? Now you've just maybe taken that burden off the spouse for that month. Maybe they get it out of their system talking to you for a call or two. So I think you're doing people a favor to ask them. I agree with you 100%, Carlos. People want to help. And, and as a member of the National Speakers Association, you know, the whole premise of that organization is give everything away. You know, be as generous with your knowledge as you can. And it's something that I have lived by in my career, and I certainly encourage others in organizations I've started uh, that this is that's the right attitude because what goes around comes around. It may not be the person you helped, but the next person after that will help you. And so it's sort of a, a very generous circle that's going on in the world, and, and the more we can that virtuous circle, the better. Once you, you received your bearings, how long did it take you to finish your first draft? Well, it's such a fun question. People always say to me, how long did it take you to write your book? And because I had all these little pieces going on for those eight months, during that eight months while I was doing the proposal and, and deciding which way to go and all of this, I was writing. So I had a couple of things put together. But then in September, I got a, a, the book contract, and my deadline was February 15th. So really, the the actual solid writing time was during that period, and it wasn't all of that period. If I had to to say that this, the most um, stick myself to the chair time was about eight to ten weeks of intense writing. And that was taking all this stuff and trying to put it into the right place. And, and I had done also during that eight months or so, I had been doing lots of interviews and I did more interviews during the time of the contract. Uh, so I was also leaving those in. So, you know, I'd say really that 10 weeks was really, really intense, but I had been probably writing for a year, a year and a half before that, not counting the blog posts and the, and the teaching. Did you put yourself on a schedule to write per day? Once at the end, absolutely. You know, I got this book contract and, you know, the deadline is February 15th, but I was very, very motivated to get done by the first week of January. And I, the reason was I wanted to have some editing time. I wanted some friends of mine to come and, and do editing parties. And let me tell you a little bit about how that works. And I think it's really interesting for your audience. Uh, this is my book coach, Sam Horn, who taught me this. You know, she said, you know, finish your book at least five or six weeks before the deadline if you can, and then invite people over. In my case, I did three different evenings, and I invited people from my book club and actually two book clubs, um, one of which I've been in for 20 years and longtime friends of mine, and other friends that I knew and, you know, people that I thought might be helpful. And I invited them over for a couple of hours, served a gourmet dinner and some wine, and they would each get two or three chapters in the evening. And they, the goal was actually to sort of stop between chapters and, and actually have people comment and so on, but people were really intense. They didn't sort of stop between chapters, so they ended up just reading their chapters and writing notes all over them, and then I would be in the other room, and they would come into the other room, and, and they would kind of walk me through their ideas, and then they would leave, and the, you know, a week later I had another one, and a few days after that I had a third, and then I took all of that, so I had at least people at each of those sessions and so I had at least six comments on every chapter six sets of comments on every chapter some I had more 
And one chapter, it was very obvious, I just had to scratch it and start over. But nobody liked it. Nobody had anything positive to say. And so that was a real gift because you know, I could have gone to the editor, you know, the publisher with that, and it would have been a, a disaster. But they just threw that away. And, and one person particularly sort of scared the living daylights out of me. I, she came in. She sat down, she took a got her glass of wine and a red pen, and she did not stop for three hours. She honestly edited and edited and edited. And at the end, I was terrified. I thought, oh, my goodness, she hates it. I can't look at this. There's no way. And for three days, I wouldn't even open this, this document. But at the end, I looked at it, and, and really, looking back, hers was the best gift that anyone has ever given me because she really got my book and she was in there with such care and love and had such great generous comments and suggestions and ideas and and I had no idea she really had that gift. I mean I sort of had an inkling of it, but boy, she really gave me this wonderful gift. So the intense time for writing was get up in the morning between six and seven AM, feed the cats, get breakfast and sit down and do not pass go for hours. So I turned off my email, no appointments, no phone calls, and I didn't get out of my chair except for maybe lunch and, you know, take the cat out. But that was about it from 7 in the morning until between 1 and 3 in the afternoon, six days a week for that, you know, 8 to 10-week time period. And so it was super intense. Then in the afternoons, I'd have appointments and meetings, and then in the evening, I would just collapse and just kind of rest my brain and start over the next day. And that, that was my intense process. That really worked for me. That and the editing parties are, I think, what made my book successful, successfully get completed. So how did you feel when you completed that milestone of your, your main draft? I love to tell that story, actually, because it's so funny. You know, January came, I, one of my very dear friends has written a number of books this year, and I was celebrating. I Partially, I wanted to finish it because it I needed that time period, but partially because it was she was coming to visit for a day and from out of town. And so she got to the airport, and I was you know, kind of crowing, very proud of myself. Oh, I'm finished, I'm finished, I'm so excited, I'm so excited. And, and she turned to me and she said, you do know, Denise, that you have at least seven more drafts to go before your book is done. And I remember looking at her and thinking, I have never hated anyone more than I hate you right now. <laughs> and of course, I didn't hate her. But it was just that moment of, what? But she was right. You know, looking back, I, there was at least seven more drafts that had to be done before that book was complete. So, yeah, I was proud of myself that I was done early, but I wasn't done. And there was more drafts before it even got turned in on February 15th and more drafts before the second round, during the second round of edits, and more drafts before the third round of edits. So, yeah, it was there was definitely a lot more work, but I was very, very proud of myself on both that day in early January, before she said that, and then on the final day, when the final, you know, in September, when the final drafts went in and all the layout was done and the copy was done and the cover was done and all of it, it was such a, such a wonderful moment. So you did, I think, a beautiful job of telling us all the sweat that was involved in getting your book ready and getting it out the door. So can you tell us a little bit more of the, the process after the book was ready to, to go out, what you experienced? Yeah, for me, the interesting part was the during the journey, the, the part was so fascinating to see was that there were so many unexpected things about it, that there was a, a sense that 
there should be, after centuries of people publishing books, that there should be a process, right? You would think that they would hand you a, uh, an outline at the beginning and say, on this day, this is going to happen. On this day, this is going to happen. But honestly, that didn't come true with my publisher, at least, with Wiley. Um, I felt like there was a lot of unexpected things coming at me and a lot of um, other pieces to this puzzle. I mean, you need the, the endorsements and you need the back cover copy and you need the you know, testimonials on the website. And of course, then there was the website journey and all of that. So there was a lot of other pieces to this puzzle that it, it took to get the book out the door. To me, the fun part was when you know, the launch day actually arrived and, and the book went out, but there was months in there even between when the book was complete and the book came out that there was an enormous amount of work. So I, I maybe I've said too much about the sweat. I don't want to scare people off, but I don't also want to underestimate that there is there's a lot of independent ind- uh, individual pieces that have to happen in order to get it out. But the once it was out in the world, the, the journey of being out sharing it with people was was much more fun and as an extrovert it was certainly me in my in my heaven as it were because I got to be in front of people and and sharing my ideas and hearing people's impact, input and impact of, and engagement around the book ideas and that's I think what I was living for and it was and it certainly came true. So let me just start by saying it is okay to scare the audience. We need to get them as scared as possible. <laughs> So they can just get it over with now. Get the fear out of the way. So when they start, there's no more fear, or at least very little fear. They'll know what to expect. But speaking of that, that fear, uh, you there was a couple of things that you said that uh, that basically caught you off, and you were kind of hesitant, and you stopped in your tracks in your publishing uh, yeah, journey. I did. Can you explain a little bit more yeah, on really? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I've, I've learned that telling this story is very important to people because I think there is a, a sense that somebody who has a published book with a reputable publisher is in some ways on some pedestal. And I think that, that maybe, I don't know, that we're different from them in some way because we do have this book. And, and I will just tell you that, that everybody has their own journey and everyone has their own story. And, and for me, the fear was really palpable the day I got my book contract. And up until then, I was on a journey that was going well, and I was I was learning a lot, and I was happy-go-lucky and proud of myself that I'd gotten this contract, et cetera. And then, literally, the day the contract arrived in my mailbox, I got terrified. And you know, it took me six weeks to get out from that terror. And I'm not proud of that because what I'm not proud of is not that I was terrified because we all get terrified, but that I didn't tell anybody. And and I, I like to share that I literally watched every episode of The West Wing, which, of course, you know, I'd already seen. And what was it going to help me in writing my book? I have no idea. But that was how I dealt with my terror. I went about my business every day doing my, you know, my day-to-day job of my running my company and dealing with my clients. And then at night, I would watch episodes of The West Wing instead of writing. And this went on for several weeks until my two friends, who are in my mastermind uh, group, came into town. They were so proud of me that I'd gotten this book contract, so jazzed for me. And they realized pretty quickly 
when I picked them up at the airport that I was not happy. <laughs> and so they spent the day really helping me to sort of piece it together, figure out uh, what was going on. And for me, what was really going on was, and it took a while to figure it out, but I had, I had raised the bar so high. I had, I had sort of in my mind, I had made this so impossible to, to achieve that this book was never going to be this perfect creation that in some ways I thought was, it had to be. And that, um, that perfectionism isn't, I'm not the only one that that certainly happened to. I had spoken to a lot of different people about their own terror with this. And some, some people it happens on the day that they got the contract. Like I, another friend of mine told me it happened literally on the day that her book went to the publisher, the final draft, and she became terrified about having her ideas out in the world and having people attack those ideas. And and as somebody who coaches and advises and wrote a book on how to do this journey, there is an entire chapter in the book about overcoming your demons and overcoming those those uh, fears, or as, as one of my clients calls it, the itty-bitty shitty committee in our brain, because that is very loud at a lot of times. And for me, it was very loud in the story of perfection. In others, it manifests in many different ways. But without others to, to, to converse with, without others to admit what's going on, there's no way I would have broken that logjam and then had you know, a much shorter time actually to write the book as a result because I sort of wasted all these weeks. But the terror had to be gotten through to get to the other side and to be then on the, on the path to, okay, I can do this. And, and one of my mastermind friends said to me something that was so funny that that's what really broke the logjam. But she said, you know, Denise, you've got a book contract, which means you got into dance, which means you're being paid to write this book, which means you have to write the book. And I don't know whether that was my MBA brain that finally was like kicked into, oh, she's right. I'm being paid. Of course, I would never not fulfill a contract. So get to sit down and write that book. And, of course, if you really figure it out, I was probably earning, you know, three cents every 30 hours, but whatever. It was irrelevant. What was mattered to me was that I would never break a contract and I would never break my word. And that's what got me to go sit down and write the book and to just keep going until I had a book that I was proud of. And that was all I could do. There was never going to be a perfect book. But I could have a book I was proud of if I worked hard enough at it. And that's what I ended up doing. Just to... To walk back a little bit out of all the things that you heard, I've heard, I've heard several things, but one of the things that stood did you just say uh, itty bitty shitty committee? <laughs> I certainly did. Okay. I just wanted yeah. to make sure that's what you said. Can you, can you really go into a little bit? Cause I love that itty bitty shitty committee that stays in your brain. That is so true. I think that sums up and our audience, once they pick that up, they're like, oh my God, that is so in my head right now when I try to do something. It is. So can you can you so just bad. go into a little bit more detail as to the uh, IBSC? Yes, so good. It's even got an acronym. Now it's official. It's official. Yes, my client said this, this. My client said this to me once in a meeting, and I just asked her if I could put it in the book because it was so perfect. It's exactly right. It's exactly that that very loud voice in our brain. Sometimes it can be quiet, and we can quiet it, but many times it's. And it can sound like a lot of different things. You know, it's the not good enough, it's the you'll never get this done, or who are you to think that you can, or somebody's already said that, or people aren't going to agree with you, or who cares about this idea. I mean, all of those different messages, and there are lots of them, and I hear, I hear them 
in cacophony at times, and sometimes they, they quiet down. And so how do you quiet the itty-bitty shitty committee? I ended up, that's one of the chapters that I ended up adding to the book. When I first wrote the seven steps, or the, it were five steps, as I said, and one of them was not this step that was right in the middle, which was overcoming these demons and, and firing your itty-bitty shitty committee, as I called it, and moving on. And so I ended up, everybody I interviewed, throughout the journey of writing this book about their journey of being a thought leader, I asked them how they overcame that shitty committee in their brain. And so I ended up creating a chapter on what I called the rules for resilience. How do you keep picking yourself up, brushing yourself off, and moving on when that committee is loud or somebody does say something negative or you do see another book that came out that's right in your genre and you think, oh, it's all been said, or, or somebody says, who are you to think, whatever. And there's the negative voices from our culture, from our religion, from our family, and that's what I really learned, both as I was writing the book and as I was talking about the book, that these voices are the same voices in, in writing a book as they are in becoming a thought leader. Being a thought leader is about putting your ideas out in the world. It's literally the same journey. And so what happened when I was out talking about the book, when I would share my own journey and my own fears, people would tell me that oh, they would either say, yes, my voice says I'm too young, or my voice says I'm too young, too old, or my voice says my culture doesn't, doesn't encourage people to to brag or my culture says that women's voices should be softer than men's or my my religion says or my community says or my boss says or my family says there was all these different voices so the voices are not always internal although we internalize them in a in a very uh, overpowered sense in other words we give too much power to those voices we might hear somebody say very casually, well, why do you think you can write a book? And then literally just asking, but in our mind, they've just doubted us, and that doubt magnifies, and, and it stays with us, and it is very persistent and prevalent. And so this, this idea of these rules for resilience and, and, and ideas for how you can pick yourself up and brush yourself off and move on, it became really important for me to share uh, that, that this these frameworks that people had for, um, so here's just one, I'll just share one that I love. So Chip Connolly, who I interviewed for the book, who was an author and a multi-time CEO and just a very accomplished guy uh, who I've always admired, he said that what he ended up doing in order to get his books written is that he would wake himself up at like really early in the morning, three, four o'clock, he said, because he found that his his writing brain was awake, but his critic was still asleep. And I thought, okay, that's what worked for him. So I wanted to share that. So I shared a lot of little stories like that that people that people told me. Another one was a guy saying, um, you know, I, I don't really believe in mistakes. Mistakes are only if you do the same thing over and over again that you already know is not working. He says everything else is just learning. And I love that frame. It's such a different way of looking at the world that, that we're not actually making mistakes if we keep learning. If we only make mistakes, if we keep stumbling on the same rock in our path because we just couldn't figure out that it's time to move that rock or walk around it. So that, those kinds of lessons that I learned from people in my, home, in my research and the homework that I did for the book were, were valuable both as I was writing them and also for me to hear and write and try to internalize at the same time. I'd like to just summarize a little bit of what you said. Uh, first of all, for our audience, the voices in your head, 
they all discovered each other and they unionized and they formed a committee against you. And that committee threatens to strike anytime you want to do something new. But the way to beat the committee is to get up really early because they're a bunch of slackers and they like to get up late. So thank you, Denise. This is very important. If anybody takes anything away, get up early before your voices wake up. Because once they wake up, they're going to be pissed and they're going to strike. So if they're going to strike, it's better to strike during lunch when you can feed them and they'll go into some food coma than to have them strike when you're about to go into some major writing. And with that said, it's time to get Denise into trouble. So Denise... I know you you're you're gonna you're gonna miss somebody and they're gonna let you know. You know how it is when you when you go to start thanking people, they're going to tell you, Well, you didn't thank me. You thanked everybody else and you didn't thank me. How could you thank them? I did more than them. So what I like you to do, you do not have to say any names, even though they know exactly who they're who you're talking about. But who were some of the people that helped you along the way? What were really their major roles? Because one of the things I'm loving about what you're saying is you're not always saying I, I, I. You're saying we. You're saying people that I know, my friends. You're not taking this endeavor alone. And I think that's one of the biggest things that kills a lot of new or would-be authors is they feel that they're completely alone. It doesn't matter if you're writing fiction or nonfiction. If you're writing a complete story by yourself, it is just tough because you have no way to grow out of that story. You have really no direction where to go. And I'm really interested in finding who were some of the major players that helped you out, whether you knew they were major players or not. Well, the one that was probably the most helpful and who I honored in my book was actually my mom. Unexpectedly, she became my real partner throughout the entire journey. She's the only person who read every draft, every word, and she... Well, she wasn't so much a content editor. She was an incredible uh, grammarian. She knows where to put the hyphens, all the commas, what doesn't make sense. And she would be able to write back and go, okay, maybe if you put this before this or this is repetitive or whatever. And then also she's got this incredible gift for doing research. And so she would find a section of the draft that just didn't make sense, and she'd curate like five articles into my mailbox about that topic. And it was just such a gift, honestly. So she gets the biggest kudos because she was with me throughout. And we became so much closer as a result. I really think of this as our book because we worked hard on it together and she was a huge encouragement. But there was many other people. I mentioned the two women in my mastermind. Uh, So this is a group I've been in for a couple of years that both authors and speakers and, and we meet regularly, although we don't live in the same states. And we meet regularly to support each other in our businesses and our personal goals. And so they were a huge stand for me because they had written many books and felt this was content that I could own and was evergreen content that I needed to get out in the world. Um, one of my best friends was uh, the, the one who saved me at the end because the book was way too long and I had a, in the contract it said how many words and I've had a lot too many words and so I kind of trusted her enough to just give her the book and say this chapter, this chapter, and this chapter are too long, cut. And I never put back in anything she said to cut. And she was such a gift to me because she could say, okay, this is repetitive or this is better explained in this other chapter or this needs to move over here. And and so as a content editor, she was hugely helpful. I also had an acquisitions editor who was with me for, for the first part of the process who 
as I mentioned earlier, she had a very crystal clear view of my book, and I, I honor and respect her viewpoint and her point of view as a as an editor to help me craft a book that was sellable and also that told a story in a way that made great sense. I mean, she, for example, was the person that made one of the chapters come alive. The one I said that I had to scrap, she was like, oh, no, no, that was supposed to be this chapter. And so that was also helpful. And then, of course, all my readers, I had so many different people who were readers along the way. And then there was lots of other authors, as I mentioned, that championed my book, both after it was out and during the journey, and lots of friends and community members. I'm a member of lots of different communities, and so many of them have have helped me, you know, hosted events for me and put things out on their Twitter feed or sent an email to people or invited me in to speak. So there's been just tons of people, really, and and you need that community to, to make a book successful. So I, I really encourage people to build build a lot of friends because you're going to need them. And another beautiful tip uh, Denise has given us, folks, is when you start thanking people, your mother should be the first person you thank, no matter what. <laughs> Unless, unless you want yeah, the holidays to be very cool. interesting. <laughs> Christmas would, would have been... I my dad had passed before I started the book because I'm sure he would have helped too, but uh, my mom was absolutely instrumental. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that you had family support on there. Uh, let's talk about your your platform. You talked about a, having a platform is important in gaining uh, a publisher contract. Why is that? Well, one of the things that I learned in writing this book was that in part of doing a proposal for a, a traditional publisher is that they aren't actually as interested in your content as they are in your platform. And what do I mean by that? They want to know that you're going to be invited to speak. They want and about your book. They want to know that you're going to have people who are going to do all the things that I just mentioned, host book parties for you, get you in front of audiences, uh, share your book and your ideas. So they want to know things like how many times have you spoken in the last year? How many uh, Twitter followers do you have? Do you do things on other social media? And what does that look like? Who are the people that you know that are famous? Who would be willing to, to put a put a uh, testimonial or an endorsement in your book? Who would be willing to to uh, buy multiple copies of your book in a company, et cetera, et cetera. So that is the platform they're looking for. They don't want it to be made up either. I mean, they were really kind of digging in with me on on do I have what I say I have and, and wanting to see all the different, not the contracts for speaking, but they wanted to see where were the places that I've been speaking. So the fact that I had been a speaker for many years and that I did have a, a broad uh, social community and many different communities that I was a part of that both communities I'd started and communities I joined, that all played a part in me getting that contract because I'm not world famous. You know, I'm not Chip Connolly who who had, you know, been on many, many bigger stages than I had. And so it was selling an individual. You have to have that platform in order to compel them to believe that you're going to sell enough books to be worth, first of all, an advance, but second of all, uh, even a contract. And another good point that you just brought up is, and I'm not sure if it, folks out there picked this up, is that a publisher is not there to promote you or market you. That's your job. They're there to get your, your book out there. They have their own publishing methods and marketing methods, but it's not as advanced as authors uh, think it is. So a lot of the work is really done by the author itself. And if you're a speaker and you have a platform, that makes it a lot easier for them and also a lot easier in getting a contract as well. But that was a very good no way that, where you're partnering with your 
with your publisher because they know that you have Twitter followers, you that you have a good Facebook following, then you might be on YouTube. What are some other ways that you think you can partner with a publisher? Well, I wish I could say I had a lot of great ideas here. To be honest, I found the journey with a publisher, a traditional publisher, to be more frustrating than I expected. Uh, you know, <laughs> when I'm in my snarky phase, I say, how do these companies stay in business? Because honestly, they offer so little compared to what I expected. You know, I, I guess I expected they would have a huge email list and they would email to their huge email list. They don't have an email list, uh, despite the fact that they've been in business for years. They don't have a social media presence. They don't have any kind of speakers bureau. So at least my publisher, maybe others do, but I got very little in the way of what I expected. And in addition, of course, my publisher was going through, I published in an imprint of, of Wiley, but during the year my book came out, the imprint is pretty much gone. So everyone that I worked with on my book actually left. And so this this partnership that I had been hoping for really was mostly this beginning person, this acquisitions editor, and who really believed in me. Unfortunately, she went on maternity leave the day I got my book contract, and she came back six months later. She lasted a week before she took a much better job at another publishing house. So again, my, my partner in crime there was gone. And so it really was a it was a disappointing journey from the side. I mean, the, the woman, the PR person who I, I took her out to lunch and tried to wine and dine her and whatever, she told me she was she was doing PR for 67 books that year. Like, how did I expect that my book was going to get that kind of attention? It just didn't. And so while I did get a, a roundup review at Harvard Business Review because of them, uh, I honestly don't think I could point to much of anything else that they did for me besides, of course, publishing the book and giving me a nice advance. So aside from the advance, which we, you know, we, we all love money, um, do you think on your, your next book and the following books that you do, you do them with a publisher or will you go self-publishing? The, thing, the world has changed so much even since a couple of years ago that I made my book contract. So I'm not sure. if I. The reason I publish with a traditional publisher is because my book is about credibility and visibility. And I believe that at the time that the credibility of a traditional publisher was important. Now, a couple of years later, and particularly if I published on something other than what I published on, I would really reconsider it. Uh, you know, there was, I, I should say one other thing that the publisher did for me. They did get me a very nice uh, Amazon promotion program over Christmas and throughout January and February, and that pushed my book out in a big way. I, I will say that that would not have happened without them, so I can't overlook that was one thing that they did do for me. I think any leverage you can get from a publisher or anybody else is is worth the value, especially if you're, you're self-publishing. It is so hard because when I published my book, which was uh, self-published in 2008, it it was tough getting out there on the speaking circuit and letting everybody know that you exist. Uh, so yeah. I commend you for having a a publisher behind you. That's that's one of the big things to to enjoy in life. And you were also yeah. mentioning look, you go ahead. You have something to say. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. Oh, okay. I like it when people agree with me. Um, but <laughs> when You also mentioned the importance of the contacts uh, after you get the published. Why is your Rolodex and network critical to a successful launch? Well, I think it goes to what we've been talking a little bit about, that this sense of having people to call to to vet ideas, having people to call to get resources. So, for example... When I was thinking about hiring a publicist, I reached out to all the authors I knew and said, you know, 
how do you do this and who do you hire and how do you pick one? Then I needed to hire, I actually had a, a web developer, so I didn't need any resources there, but then I wanted to hire a social media team for a couple of months and, again, reached out to my community to find somebody to do that. And, and you know, I got all the scary stories and all the good stories and eventually found some people who could help me. So that Rolodex, if I didn't have somebody directly like I did in the case of building my great website, but having people who could help me find the resources for those next steps. Uh, you know, also having to hire, uh, I have a virtual assistant, but I ended up hiring a second one to help with the book launch. And that I found through a, 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 a company to a friend of mine called EA Health that was hugely valuable in, in giving me the right kind of person. So there was a need for that Rolodex to come in uh, handy, not and not just that, very many people, as I said, hosted events for me that was super generous of them. And so calling on those contacts through email and through my wealthy community and my Stanford community and other communities that I'm a part of, uh, that was that were the kinds of people that really stepped up to the plate for me. Most unexpectedly, people came out of the woodwork sometimes, people that I didn't know well, who just loved books or loved the topic or, or knew of me and wanted to host, or they wanted to host an event, and this was a, a good speaker for them. There was a lot of reasons people helped me, but uh, it was always this, this generosity of spirit and having a big Rolodex that, that together that helped. So let's go ahead and start talking about some gossip right now, because... Uh... We all love gossip. So how did you get to meet someone like Guy Kawasaki to write the foreword of your book? And didn't you meet around 1998 and now in 2015, you still have a connection with him? How's that going? Guy Kawasaki is one of those people that I don't think he ever loses the contact that he has. But Guy gave me my first office space in 1998. So that's really how I got to know him. I was, I had started a nonprofit called the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs here in the Valley, and I was in technology working, doing this on the side for a couple of years, and we finally got to that point when it was time to step out of my my day-to-day job and do this full-time, and I needed office space, and so a friend of mine introduced me to him, and he was starting Garage.com at the time, and so he offered me free office space. I was shared office space with him, I don't know, two years, maybe three years. I can't remember now. But as a result, we got to be good friends through that. And uh, he was a great uh, advisor and counselor. And he also took advice and counsel from me during that time. And subsequently, run into each other at various events and programs. And I invited him to speak somewhere. So we had kept in touch through all of those different realms and roles. And in the Valley, is not that big a place. Uh, so he... When I reached out to somebody, I, you know, I was sort of racking my brains thinking, first of all, who is really the epitome of a thought leader and who would I think would bring some some clout in class to my book? And so I, I sent him a note, and he was very responsive. But I will tell you the funny, the funny gossip behind it is that he was, he was a little argumentative with me about the idea of thought leader. And in a good way, it really generated an excellent conversation of what is a thought leader and can anybody be a thought leader and how did I think about this? He wasn't going to you know, slap his name on something that he didn't agree with. And so he, uh, we spent a while on the phone sort of talking it through and, and, and batting it back and forth until he understood my point of view and, and was willing to write it. And, and so he, you know, not only did we get the nice, uh, advance, you know, the, uh, opening for the book, but, uh, got to put his name on the cover. So it was a, it was a big plus. I really thank him for it. 
And I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier about the community is once you're in the community or you're trying to go to the community, use all the contacts you can, whether the contacts very new, but if they seem very responsive and receptive to you, then try to take, I don't want to say take advantage of it, but see where that can lead you. I think that's very important to to keep that in the back of your mind, all this collaboration that you do with anybody you can to help you either on your platform, speaking platform, or on your book. It can make a world of difference. And speaking about collaborations, how did you collaborate with others to help build momentum for your book? Well, a number of different ways. So, you know, given that publishers don't do a book tour for you any longer, I ended up getting on the phone with various clients of mine. I'm fortunate to have clients who are across the country. And so um, when I wanted to go to D.C., I called my client in D.C. and said, hey, you know, why don't I come in? I'll do a half-day consulting with you. You can host an event at your firm, and then uh, we can, you know, you'll have that, we'll have that time together. And then the next day, I called another friend and said, hey, I know, you're, you, know you and I have been involved in this community for a while. Why don't we bring some of the people together? And, and I've got an idea of where we can host it. So I would do a couple of events back-to-back, but it was always based around the client. So I was getting paid to, to go to whatever the city was. I had to pay off in my own airfare unless I was being, going to that city to speak. But I would at least get the consulting gig out of it, and then I would have the event they would be kind enough to host, which was good for them because often they would interview me about the book so they'd have a chance to be in front of an audience. And then we'd bring communities together, our shared community together. And then I would be able to do a couple of different events. So I did that in Chicago and in New York and uh, in D.C., as I mentioned, Seattle. Uh, so I was able to do a number of cities that way. And then in addition, my alma mater, Wellesley College, invited me to do a, a wonderful event uh, for the students there. Uh, and then I had a lot of speaking engagements that I normally would have and an additional one. So this this uh, collaboration, though, was really around the people that I, I call myself a groupie. I'm in a lot of different groups. So I called on all the groups, whether they be alumni groups, whether they be uh, nonprofits I'm a part of, places I've spoken, organizations that I am a member of or have donated to. I, I was kind of shameless. I called on everyone and anyone. The year before the book came out, I did a number of free speaking engagements with people in, in exchange for them um, marketing the book. So I'd say, hey, I'll come you know, only in the Bay Area. I wouldn't do that outside. But it, I'll come to your organization. I'll do this talk. And then you have to agree. You'll put something in your newsletter. You'll mail out to your list a couple times about the book. And you know, you'll put a little endorsement in the book in the newsletter. So those kind of trades were very valuable in getting the book sold. So let's keep this in contact, what you just talked about. But let's... Just go down a different road real quickly, and let's talk about social media. With of all the social media services that you've used to help promote you, what was the which one had the best response uh, in getting your name and book out there? From your personal experience, I wish I could. I'm not actually sure I could say that any one was more helpful. I actually believe they're all intertwined. Uh, I'm not a big Google Plus person, but I really enjoyed the online conversations through Twitter and using LinkedIn updates and using Facebook. So, you know, for Facebook, I have two places. I have my personal, which you know, I sparingly put out information about my book, but I, I don't hesitate to do that because if I'm in a community and my friends are there, I want them to come to the book launch party. Um, and then I did hire a team to do some of the other social media and get me more followers around the book. Um, but you know, Twitter, I think, has 
drawn me to many other influencers and people that I have started following who have followed me, some of whom have then invited me to come and guest blog and, and people have asked me to come and be on an internet radio show or whatever. And then in addition, LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn was very, is a very powerful community. I've got many, many people that I'm connected to. And, and I've always said to people, connect with me on LinkedIn. And so I get as I get out and speak, I get more people coming there. So I think all of them, I can't say any of them directly sold a book, XYZ number of books, but I can say that all of them were were of value in their own way. What was the highlight of your book launch? Uh, wow, I will tell you, it was the, the Wellesley community experience. Uh, and you always think when you go to a college that someday you might be on that other side of the table. You know, you go to all these talks when you're at, at college, you see all these speakers, and now to be on the other side of that, that was a huge highlight for me. But then it was added to it because I uh, also, the day before I got there, they sent me an email and they said, you know, would you go to the bookstore, the wealthy bookstore, and we'd love you to sign your book. And I thought, oh, my goodness, my book is in the Wellesley Bookstore. And I remember just being so excited. So I so I go up to the library. Excuse me, I go up to the bookstore before my talk, and I walk in with my best friend who lives nearby, and my best friend from Wellesley, she came. And, and there was a shelf of alumni authors, and my book was next to the book of Madeleine Albright. And I thought, okay, I've just died and gone to heaven. I mean, this is it. I don't need to do anything else. And so I, of course, you know, got a friend, took a picture of me in front of the books, and I put it on Facebook, and another friend of mine immediately Facebooked back and said, and the only reason that her book is before your book is because Albright comes before Berceau. And I just had to laugh. I thought, you know, I think Madeline Albright can have top billing. I think that's just okay with me. For but now. She is, she's an alma mater of my college, and to even be in the same sort of realm with her was was really the highlight of my book launch. Thinking back of uh, your, your your first book launch, what do you think you'll do differently on uh, on future oh, book launches? So many, so many things. I I I would say that the one thing. Going back to that conversation about the itty-bitty shitty committee and what we've been talking about, about calling everyone, I think I would be even more fearless the second time. The truth is that, you know, months later I would run into people and they'd say, I don't know, I didn't know you had a book out. I want to talk to you, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, yeah, you know, I thought in some ways that XYZ famous person or important person that I know, you know, I didn't feel like I could call on them. And yet, they were so many of them who said to me later, of course you could have called on me and I would be happy to do something. And so I think I would be more shameless. I would ask everybody and anyone I would ask recurringly and, uh, and I would ask for longer periods of time. Now I, I said yes to many, many, many things last year and I really wore myself out by the end. Uh, but I think that there could have been some other things I could have done more strategically. Uh, for example, if I had it to do again, I would have spent a lot more time the year before the book launch to going to companies that I have contracted with and getting them to buy multiple copies of the book. I was not successful in doing that. I think I left it too late. I didn't prioritize it. And yet, looking back, you know, that's how you sell the hundreds and thousands of books and more than small events where maybe you're selling 100, 150 books, you could be selling, you know, 1,000 or 5,000 books. That would have been, I think, a better use of my time. Uh, I got very wrapped up in doing things with friends and, and with communities of people that I love versus 
really being a little more mercenary about it and realizing that you're marketing and marketing is about highest and best use and your highest and best use is time with those who can buy thousands versus those who can buy one. And so that's the, that's the conversation that I wish I, somebody had had with me, honestly, before I launched my book. One of the things that, that I'm liking of what you're saying lately is, if I can just sum it up in one word, and that's persistence, you have tons of it. it you're just one right after the other, right after the other. You're not allowing your anything to stop you because you got the... You're waking up before the itty bitty shitty committee, and I like saying that. That's why I just want to say that. But you, you have a yeah, lot of persistence. And do you think you that's to. that's you part of to. your personality? Yes, it's absolutely always been part of my personality, and I'm an entrepreneur. I think that's really the sum total of how you describe me. I've done so many different things in my life, but mostly I've been an entrepreneur. I love to start things. I love to create from scratch, and. And that takes persistence. You get a lot of people telling you that that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Don't go there. You're not going to make any money, whatever. You know, the thousands. I call it the bouquet of no's. No, 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 no. You get this whole bouquet of people for every new idea you have that tells you it's terrible. And so it goes to that resilience that I put in the book. You have to be resilient. You have to pick yourself up and brush yourself off and keep going because change is hard. And doing something different is not what most people want to do. I, on the other hand, like doing new things. So it, it puts me at odds with most people around me. And so I've learned that the way to keep doing, to, to, the way to be successful is just keep going. Just keep being that little ever-ready bunny that just keeps going and ignore all the naysayers because they're everywhere. And some of them are in your own head. And by the way, that could be all around you as well. But most of them are wrong. Uh, yes, if you hear the same thing for five years, you might want to stop. But, you know, in a book situation, more people said yes than no, and I just had to keep going. So let, before we let you go, Denise, and, we, and thank you very much for being on the show. There's just so many things that you've talked about that are very important. You hit many topics right on the head, and I hope a lot of people are writing this down or at least going to listen to the interview again so they can write things down. But let's summarize a couple of things. Um what would you say was the biggest challenge in writing your book? Letting go of perfection. Yeah, that that's a big one. Challenge. Yeah. And what would you say? Go ahead. Yeah, that was it. I'm saying, I said the other half of that. It's just knowing your book is good enough. And, you know, if you do, do, do your homework, you know, you do the draft and you keep sticking to it and you get some good help your book is good enough and that there is no such thing as a perfect book. So get it out there. And it also helps when you surround yourself with good people who are telling you that the book is ready as well, right? You're not working alone. Yeah. What would you, what would you say is the biggest challenge in publishing your book as a whole? I think the biggest challenge is just knowing how to work with a publisher when it's your first book. Uh, There were so many surprises for me that I, I just felt like every Around every corner, there was another surprise. Oh, oh, you do you haven't? They did say to me. They'd send me an email. You know, by next week we need X, Y, and Z. And you're like, X, Y, and Z. I didn't even know I had to do that. And so it just, I, I had to. As a project manager, it was infuriating to me that there wasn't a step-by-step outline of exactly when everything was due and when and what you had to do to prepare it. It was a constant set of surprises. So I would say to people. Ask as many thousands of questions of your friends and of your publisher as you can think of because you will get surprised regardless. I asked a lot of questions. I met with a lot of people. I talked to them all the time, and I still got a lot of surprises. And what would you say was your biggest challenge in 
marketing your book? That I didn't think big enough. Really, I didn't think big enough. I didn't. I I will take a little side note for one minute here, and that I did not govern my life by how many books I sold. That was not how I was measuring success. But even if that's true, I was governing it by I wanted to have more clients that were of the caliber that I wanted to play with. I wanted to have uh, more speaking engagements and higher speaking fees. I wanted to spread my ideas. All of those were great reasons to write that book. And so for all of that, you know, that's terrific. But I also would say that if I had thought bigger about this, if I played a bigger game of thinking about uh, tens of thousands of books instead of hundreds of books, I think that I would have been able to do that. I just didn't set those goals and I didn't uh, prioritize the right things to make that happen. So of all the things you've experienced so far, what would be the one piece of knowledge or advice you would want to share with our audience? Fire your itty-bitty shitty committee. Yeah, like that's easy. You didn't ask me for an easy piece of advice. So the easy piece of advice, if I had to give one, is is one that my book coach said to me, and it was two simple words, bum glue. Put some glue on your bum and sit in that chair and don't get up, right? Turn off all the distractions and just write. Because your first draft's not going to be good, your second won't either, but if you keep going, you will get a great book eventually. And that, I think, is the, the bum glue advice was really the only reason my book got done. There you go, folks. If you want to have a great selling book, there's only two things you need. Fire your itty-bitty shitty committee and get some glue for your bum. That's going to do it for this edition. If you would like to learn more about Denise, you can visit our show notes on tellingstoriesthatmatter.com. She can also be found on her website, thoughtleadershiplab.com. Denise, we would like to thank you for being on the show. We look forward to having you on again, and we'll probably have you on our other show. And we would like to thank everyone in our community for listening, and we look forward to having you download us again.